it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and thanks to Cry and Malt, this is Beer is a Conversation, our weekly sit-down with the people shaping the beer industry, and through these conversations, we dig a little deeper into the stories behind the business of beer and brewing. The Australian brewing landscape is evolving rapidly, and here we try and make sense of what is happening and better understand the issues shaping the industry. This week, you're in for a cracker of a chat with one of the great characters of Australian craft beer. I've long wanted to have a conversation with Willie the Boatman's Pat McInerney, but was saving it for a chance when we could do so over a beer because I knew it would be a conversation that would lend itself perfectly to that. But with COVID-19, it's very uncertain, so we had it by phone. With all of the sound issues that come with that, I apologise, but the conversation is worth it. It's a great chat about how Pat forwent his dreams of documentary filmmaking for the lure of the money of reality television making before the dream of opening his own brewery. It's a great chat about the importance of local and community to a craft brewery and also some of the surprising upsides of the COVID-19 crisis. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Pat McInerney, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Ah, thanks. Thanks, man. It's great to be here. Yeah, man, unfortunately, look, this was one conversation that I have to say I was really, really planning on having in your tap room with a beer in hand um, because it's, it's been one of the ones I've really looked forward to doing in person. But with the current situation, we haven't been able to do that um, and, and join your, your partner, Nick. Um, so we, we do have to do it online. But... How does a boy who studied at the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts come to be, you know, a, a big player in the Marrickville uh, beer community or the Inner West beer community? Well, physically, I'm big, <laughs> and, and, thank, you, and well, thank you for that, Matt. <laughs> um, look, to tell you the truth, I went to went to Whopper at a great, uh, great few years over in Western Australia. Um, I'll cut a long story short. I ended up in television for about 20 years uh, through through WAPA. It brought me from West, Melbourne to Western Australia to Sydney. And um, and then I was in reality TV for a number of years, got sick of it, loved time brewing, and here I am. <laughs> so, so you were a <laughs> Melbourne boy originally, and, and that was what I wanted to ask. So, so you, you went from Melbourne to Perth to study um, yes. at the Academy of Performing Arts, but then Correct. work brought you to Sydney. Correct. What took you from TV to craft beer then? Uh, look, I, was, I worked on a lot of shows that were, it was, you know, it was, uh, they called it factual, but it's reality. So I worked on like... Um, Initially, I started out uh, wanting to be a serious documentary maker. I was at SBS. And then I, uh, I got married and I realized that um, I didn't have time to die for my art. My art had to die for me. So I, um, I went into reality television because the pay was a lot better. And I was on shows like Border Security and RPA and a few others. And I was really just filming people on the worst day of their lives. And after, after five, you know, you know, you know oh, I, could, 
I'm Pat from Channel 7, you know, I know you've got eight kilos of cocaine up your ass. Can, can you sign here so I can film your story? <laughs> and, and they did that, they said yes. I'm, I'm a very good salesman, Matt. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of them did, yes. So, um, uh, yeah, and, and just in the end, it just it, it, and particularly the hostel where you're filming people and, you know, it never went where, but you'd, you'd be in a room where someone's dying or, or, or just died and it just bums you out. And um, then I, I got moved to the development area at Channel 7 and I got about... I made about 12 pilots in a year, none of which were commissioned and all of which since I've left have been commissioned. <laughs> <laughs> and then I ended up on uh, Better Homes and Gardens. I went, you know what, I'm in a room. This is like a retirement village for TV producers. I'm out. <laughs> I've had a couple. <laughs> well, man, I, I can so, understand, you know, when you think of, you know, you didn't want to die for your art, your art had to die for you. Um, yeah. And, and that's where you got into the reality style Craft brewing is pretty much is is a pretty odd uh, place to go. Ah. Then uh, you know if you didn't want to die for your art, because I would have thought there was a lot of that in uh, craft brewing. Ah. Well, I, I was lucky. Um, I was a lot older when a lot older than most of the guys who uh, who get into the business nowadays. Um, you know, I'm I'm just turned fifty now. So, well, I suppose I was only forty four, but when I got into it when we opened Willie the Boatman. Um, so, uh, but I was a lot more established in life, so I had, had a house that, both Nick and I had a houses that we could, you know, put put money on and uh, or loan money off. And um, when we first started, we were very we were very small, like, uh, and, and our equipment was quite cheap. Uh, we were able to restore um, Dairy equipment. It was very much a, <laughs> the, the classic uh, route to home brewing or to, to uh, <laughs> craft brewing. Yeah, absolutely. So it was kind of Willie's boatman was built on, uh, you know, dreams, not and hope, and so, <laughs> <laughs> not and not much more. Well, but, which uh, is what documentary had, filmmaking. Yeah, which is why I sort of think it, it, it's quite interesting that you've come the full circle and you know, sort of living that life of of, of hope uh, a little bit as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, um, I suppose with uh, a wife at the time that um, was working and, um, and and able to support the family while I was sort of living out my dream. Um, also, you know, we saved a lot of money. I didn't have to buy beer anymore. So. <laughs> 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 so there's a bit of extra in the coffers each week, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So it was, you know, it, it was just a real passion of mine. Uh, you know, I loved it in the backyard, and and I loved having people around tasting our beer, and it was just really a, a natural progression. And it was, and it uh, and it was our art. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't you make a story out in the field and, you know, you, you, there were some opportunities to do some great stories on border security about, about immigration. I think I got the only anti-John Howard um, comment ever on uh, border security during um, the immigration <laughs> <laughs> raids of the early noughties. Um, there was, but then um, once, once it leaves my hands, then it went to the network. And, um, and so you... you, you you are, your art's really dying for you because you have no real say in the final product. Um, whereas when you're, when you're making beer or, or, or doing tapestry or, or making gin or, or whiskey, really the final product is you. 
and, and really should shout you. And, and I really felt that, um, that Nick and I, you know, obviously our beer was pretty ordinary in the day, but damn well proud of it. Um, and, and, and I thought, you know, it really sort of screamed our story. Well, let's step back. So at what point did you get into craft brewing? Because I know that you were an extract brewer when you first started. What was the attraction yeah. of that? Well, like, probably like all home brewers, I suppose, you know, we got into it to make cheap beer. Um, but then we started, you know, I started watching a lot more YouTube and, and reading and then I really wanted to get into all grain brewing because I wanted to, I suppose, take control of, of what we were producing and, and create the, you know, create the actual uh, recipes and, 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 and have a product that was, you know, genuinely ours and ours only. So that, that was kind of the progression from extract to uh, all-grain brewing. And then the next step was to buy area equipment and, um, and turn it into a brewing <laughs> brewing equipment. How old were you when you started home brewing? Because you know, saying that we wanted cheap beer is often the province of the uh, university student. But I gather you're a little <laughs> bit older than that. Yeah, I was about thirty-five. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just, you know, it was just something fun to do in the backyard. To be honest, it was just something. It was just a nice Saturday afternoon thing to do in the backyard with my mate Nick, and then you know, you'd make beer. You drink beer and you'd have a barbecue, and both the families get to socialise, and the kids would socialise, and you know it was just a, it was just a nice Saturday afternoon activity, really. And how did it morph between you and Nick? From gee, this is a great Saturday afternoon activity in the backyard. To you know, we could probably do this instead of the jobs that we're currently doing. Basically, as I said, I ended up on better homes and gardens, and was felt like I was just in a graveyard for TV producers doing the same story every year. They'd say, oh, you have to go out with Graham Ross. That's, uh, he's doing the, he's planting daisies today. I go, yeah, I know. I've seen the story like 10 times. I, watched it. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what the story is, right? Well, I was watching it when I was still living at home with mum. And then Nick was, Nick's uh, a very, very clever man. And he, um, he worked on big events around the world, like Olympics sort of stuff. So he was... Um, he was working on the London Olympics and it looked like he, the next job he could get was the Rio Olympics, Olympics, I should say. And he said, you know, I don't want to take them in five years. I have to live in Rio. And it was a high job. He was going to be a, the technical director of the whole opening ceremony. And he said, I don't want to do it. And I said, I don't want to go back to work on Monday. I said, it's just with, once in our lives, let's just back ourselves in. And he went, you know what? I think you're right. And that that was the that was the transition. And how did how did you broach it with your partners? You know, obviously there was a you know a certain security that came with the the, the jobs that you both had. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think initially they were quite excited about it. I mean, they could genuinely see our passion for for beer and and beer, and for, well for beer making and you know and. I suppose, you know, particularly uh, my wife, uh, and well, I'm separated from my wife, or divorced, um, but uh, at the time, you know, it was really excited because it was a, a chance for, for um, entrepreneurialism to flare within the family. I mean, we're, we're still a quite a, quite, quite a tight-knit 
Heyman and I. So, uh, you know, she's still very interested in the business, but not a part of it. Um, or never was really, but, uh, and, and the same with Nick and his wife, Lisa, they were excited to, you know, start a new adventure midlife. So it was a midlife crisis, really. <laughs> <laughs> For all of us. So tell us about, uh, you know, when you sat down to plan, um, you, you, you found the dairy equipment, you obviously didn't yep. want to go the, uh, you know, high end brewing. So it was, it, it was not a. Oh, Matt, Matt, let me. Let me correct you. Yes, we did want to go to high-end <laughs> equipment. <laughs> There's only so much money we're allowed to borrow off the house. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so look, everyone was saying at the time, and uh, this is sort of just about 2010, everyone's saying you need, you know, five dollars $600,000 to open a brewery, and we spoke to a, lot, a couple of consultants who were very helpful, um, and a couple other brewery owners, well, Basically, rich down at Henry's, and um, they were saying, "No, you can't." We said, "Look, we've got about 180, 200 grand." I said, "Yeah, you're not, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it." And uh, you're crazy, and you go broke. And but uh, thankfully, we didn't. Uh, you know, we really, really uh, lived on the edge of our on the edge of our pants, so to speak, for the first few years. And every now and then, you know, even last year, there was a couple of moments where we sort of grabbed our balls and just crashed or crashed through. And that's uh, very much a, an attitude of mine is to just hold on and just, you know, be like golf, crash or crash through. What has led to, to I never know whether success is the way that you'll describe yourselves, but you, you're still here uh, six years later um, after you, I, I think you opened in 2014? Correct. 2014. So, you know, six years later, you've expanded, you've got a new tasting room. Um, yes. You know, so, so on, on those me- metrics, uh, you, you guys are certainly successful. Yes. What, what is it that when you were potentially undercapitalized, you know, you, you've, you've said uh, that, you know, maybe the beer wasn't ideal when you first started. Um, mm. But what was it that made Willie the Boatman such a success? You know what? Absolute determination. There was just, there was no way in my mind that this business was ever, ever going to fail. And it still isn't. I don't, it's, uh, it was absolute determination. And, um, I suppose, and, and really it was, um, we really brought our local community along with the ride, you know. 12 months before Nick and I opened Billy the Boatman, I set up the Facebook page and said, Hey everyone, this is what we're doing. We're two fat dads from Tempe. And, um, opening a brewery and you know and here's a picture of here's a picture of Nick and I and Anne and Lisa and you know Willie the Boatman t-shirts <laughs> and uh, <laughs> come along for the ride and and you know what they did they did the whole community the whole neighborhood the, the Tempe St. Peter's Sydney Maracle neighborhood came along for the ride and so when we opened uh, all our beer was fully subscribed and the it, local pub came along with us and, and also our neighbours came along with us. And I find that aspect really interesting. It's one of the things that I'm really fascinated about the Willie the Boatman story because had, had you lived in Tempe um, and uh, St Peter's for, for a considerable period before you opened there or what did you...? Yeah, about, about 10 years. And what was it about that region that, you know, you, you'd left Melbourne, you'd gone to Perth, you'd been in Sydney. What was it about that area that you fell in love with? Everyone who lived in that area, Tempe, who were buying houses, were in absolutely the same situation as Anne and I, and uh, and that was 
it was the only suburb in Sydney where you could afford a house. So really, that was the draw card to Tempe. Tempe's changed a lot since we've moved in. It's a, that's a fantastic suburb, and it was. It always was a beautiful suburb, but it was just uh, always known for the tip. And um, so on the weekend of Kevin Rudd's 2020 summit, I don't know whether you remember that, I set up a Facebook group called Tempe 2020. And, and, and it led the- to you being named the Australian, uh, the Citizen of the Year in on the 2014 Australia Day Awards. Yes, that's right. So I kind of brought the band of the community together to, to kind of say, well, we're all here, let's make the best of this community as we possibly can. And, and it really, uh, I know, it, it really sparked something in the community. But not only that, it really sparked... Uh, a lot of uh, had a lot of spin-offs, so um, you know now nearly every neighbourhood in Australia has their own Facebook page, and it's great. The whole idea was to get people off Facebook and actually into the street to talk to each other. So we had photographic competitions called Love Where You Live, we have street parties, fundraisers for you know different community members who are doing it tough. So I suppose in that way I was kind of tightly knitted into the community anyway so and I had a lot of friends so it was it was kind of easy to bring the it was, when we decided to open Willie the Boatman it was kind of easy to sort of bring the community along with now talk to me that to uh, that because you see a lot of breweries these days you know six years on how many breweries were there when you guys opened uh, around about 300 look in I'm not sure nationally but in Sydney there was literally uh, young Henry and batch. So, so you guys were still relatively early, um, but you, you yeah. see a lot of breweries now that have you know, either been inspired or have watched what's happened uh, beforehand, and they sort of say, we're going to be community, we're going to be this. It, it, it sounds like being a, a, a deeply embedded part of the community has been a big part of the Willie the Boatman story. Was that a cunning business plan, or was that just a natural outgrowth of you guys being involved in your community? A bit of both. But it was, um, but really it was more about us just being so deeply involved in our community. I think that was, you know, there was nothing sort of, not sinister, but there was uh, nothing sort of advantageous about us using our connections within the community. It was just who we are, who we were and who we are. I mean, it, it has helped and, and we recognised that it would help, but, uh, but it wasn't the main reason. Does that make sense? Does that yeah. make sense, Matt? Yeah. So, 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 what was the business plan? Open up, sell beer, and um, really, our, our number one thing was just to be our local, our local brewery. And you know, for the first three to four years, we really were. I mean, we couldn't sell beer much further than Newtown. Once we got to Cleveland Street on King Street, Cleveland and King were out of beer. <laughs> so really, you know, so it was a pretty tight three kilometres. But had you, sat right, down, I mean, uh, had you sat down and worked out, well, this is how much beer that we can make, um, and if we do that, we'll both be able to pay ourselves and the, you know, <laughs> the, the mortgage and put some aside to sort of uh, upgrade from the uh, dairy. Con- pretty much. Yeah, we, we had a, you know, we put that X, you know, you've got to sell up to, you know, you've got to sell 40 kegs, which is what, two, <laughs> about 2,000 litres of, of beer a week, and, and we're, uh, we're, we're doing well. Did anything surprise you in, in, in those early days? Was, was, it, was there anything that surprised you on the good side or things that you made complete mistakes doing? 
Uh, yeah, look, look, we made some fundamental mistakes when it came to our, our brewing. Uh, uh, we were pulling it out way too quick um, because there was just so much early on. There was just so much demand from the local area for our beer. So we're rushing the beer through. I mean, and we learnt that pretty quick as well. Um, the uh, the surprising and the, on the good side was how much support we had within within our community and within our you know that sort of Maracal area LDA. Um, how much demand there was for our beer. So it was actually uh, we're almost in the early days loved to death. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Well, what was it that the locals were, you know, what's your gut feel about what the locals were responding to? Was it you and Nick as as locals? Was it just having you know, a local brewery that people could commune with? Look, I, I think it's a combination of those two. I think particularly the local dads just loved that, you know, here's two, two blokes who look like them, maybe a bit chubbier. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe a bit chubbier living the dream. I really, I really think that was, I think that was a big part of it. And I mean, that was a big part of the style in our Facebook lead up group. You know, here we are, we're just two ordinary suburban dads doing this. And this is what we're doing this week to achieve the goal. And if we do this week, then we get to do this next week. And, you know, and, and here's the, here's the tanks that we've, that we've bought. And, uh, and they're, you know, coming over. They're coming over, you know, they're getting put onto a truck down in country Victoria and, and we're following them up the Hume Highway and, you know, we just literally told the story. I mean, you know, I suppose that was a, a good thing uh, about coming from TV, you know, I just really was into telling our story and I still am. I was going to ask that. What, you know, how much of that background as a storyteller, you know, features in the, the, the brand? Um, behind Willie the Boatman? Oh, there's a lot. Even to the picking of the name Willie the Boatman. You know, there's a story behind the name. There's a story almost behind every beer. uh, You know, coming to the brewery and I could tell you stories about nearly every ornament that's hanging or every picture that's hanging on the wall. It's, It's very much a part of who we are. But tell me about that, because is that are they stories that are well known in the community, or are they stories that you have to educate and interpret, and then people go, ah, that's what it's that's what it's about. Well, Billy the boatman was a Scottish highwayman, man who was sent over to Australia in 1827. He got off the boat in Botany Bay, and he was sent to work for the local landed gentry at Timpey House which is now where Woolai Creek is. Actually, the house is still at Woolai Creek. And it was his job to row across the Cooks River because it didn't have a bridge. And it was, Tempe was the last outpost of the, of the city of Sydney. Um, and so he rowed from Woolai Creek to Tempe every day. Um, and he's buried about 200 metres from the brewery. So often we, we can take people down to the... If people are interested, I'll often wander down with a couple of cans <laughs> and we'll go and see, <laughs> go and see Willie's grave, and you know the, his uh, his headstone, and 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 the plaque they've got there for at the graveyard for Willie. So there's an absolute connection to our neighbourhood just in the name. But do people know but, that story, or or have you had to educate them? Uh, no, we've really had to educate people on that, and even local people. And and you know Willie wasn't a uh, 
you know, he's a criminal. He was a highwayman. He wasn't a, he wasn't a good guy. There was no Ned Kelly sort of, you know, Robin Hood about him. He was a rat bag. He was a he was a thief and a and a terrible fellow who uh, spent most of his or spent quite a number of weeks in Newtown lockup on bread and water rations for just being a I suppose a, a prat. But we don't celebrate Willie. We 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 celebrate the legend of the area and the stories of the area. But that's one of the things it, as a you know when when you watch marketing, sometimes I think you know people see these stories and they think it's a great idea. But if the story needs to be explained, you know, it, it almost makes it too hard. So, you know, it, if Willie's not a story that's well known, how does that resonate with the the, the local people? Uh, because there's actual there's physical things that you can that they know of and they go, oh, that's what that historical house is about. And, oh, yeah, the Cook's River. And, really? What did he write? You know, since people hear that he's local, they want to know all about him. So that's the story. They want to know the story. Who is Willie? Why? And people often come in, why Willie? And I'll tell them the story or our staff will tell them the story and they go, that is so cool. It's a good name. It's a cool name too. It, it, it's a great name, but I guess it's a brand that's not going to scale easily if you wanted to, uh, you know, no. a national brewery. No, that was never our that was never our thought. Right? Anyway, so you know, we're very much a local brewery. So, so how far are you sending your beer these days? Uh, Matt, far and wide at the moment. We're almost. I think we've got a shop in Mossman. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, is, we had we had a tap in DY before COVID. <laughs> is, is that by design or is that by limitation? That you know you, you could send it further, but you can't make enough, or is it that you consciously decided that this is you know Willie the Boatman's you know area? Uh, look, initially it was. It was, certainly wasn't my design. Um, it was purely limitations of capacity. So, um, but now it's kind of, you know, I kind of like that we don't sell beer in Melbourne or Brisbane or, or Perth, I, you know. Um, I'd rather, obviously we're now in a big push to uh, supply Greater Sydney, which we're, which we're pretty well doing. So, um, you know, but we're still kind of very local. Uh, we haven't got the capacity really to send beer interstate, and um, I don't know whether we whether we ever will. What is your production capacity these days? Uh, it's about ten thousand liters a week. Right. So, mm. so, you're, so you're, you're only looking about a half a million liters a year, just a fraction correct. over if, half if, if a million. You hit. Sorry. Yeah, I, I need to go annually, don't I? Um, <laughs> no, no, yeah. that's okay. I'm, I'm just I'm quite pleased that I was able to do that calculation. <laughs> I was impressed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, really our room is, uh, although our, our current um, our, our new space is four times as big as our old space and the brewery is four times bigger. So, um, but we really, there's not much room to put anything out. And, and you're selling that capacity? Yeah, pretty well. I mean, we, we did drip down dropped down um, post-COVID, but uh, pre-COVID, yeah, well, we were not quite that capacity, 
we'll, we'll certainly go, we're certainly on on a trajectory to grow into that capacity. And, and that's a viable, you know, how many staff have you got at the moment? We have two brewers and a casual brewer brewery assistant, and that's that's the brewery staff. Um, and at the moment, we have well, we don't have any bar staff. Not, not at the moment, but yeah. So let, let, let's talk pre-COVID yeah. um, as as the because uh, just uh, again, it, oh, it, of course, it's, Matt. Yeah, when you look at the, um, the 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 number of models, and these days, you know, there are so many different models, and so much advice for you need to do this, or you need to do this, or you need to reach this size and then distribute. Um, yeah, but but it, it sounds like you know that half million liters a year capacity. You guys are you know paying your bills, you're paying y- y- yourselves, and you're yeah. keeping the wolves at bay and also funding at least um, new capital, if not growth. Yes, that's right. So we're, we're funding our capital, we're keeping the doors up, everything you said, and, um, and also we're keeping, you know, probably eight uni students from the bars open employed with, you know, casual work as well. It kind of sounds like you are living the dream. I think I am. Honestly, I think I am. Oh, there's not, you know... I work almost seven days a week, and I absolutely love every time I come in here. So, uh, yeah, I really love it. It's just, it's awesome. I love our customers. I love the people who work for us. I, um, you know, I love our clients. You know, I'm not. Let's face it. I'm not afraid of a chat, Matt. So, uh. <laughs> which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have this chat live. But. Uh... <laughs> So, so what is the plan? You know, there is a thinking in business that if you're not growing, you're dying. Have you reached, uh, you know, within the Willie the Boatman model, have you reached a scale that you can just sort of keep open, keep operating, keep paying, and, uh, you know, you, you don't need to grow? Or is the plan to, to gradually grow the business and uh, increase capacity? Look, um, we will probably grow a little bit um, over the next sort of, well, uh, three to four years, we're we're looking at another expansion, but that was post that was pre-COVID, mm-hmm. and we've got to got to see how we come out of COVID and or how long COVID lasts to see where where you know with that three to four years or four to five years. But another another tap room would be where we would go rather than a, a full scale brewery. And and what is it about COVID um, that has potentially put that back. Talk to us uh, about how you guys have um, handled the COVID uh, crisis. Yeah, uh, you know, COVID's, um, COVID's been interesting um, and fantastic and horrible at the, all at the same time. Um, you know, we've really, uh, you know, as I was saying earlier, you know, I was 50 shades of grey on that first Monday and I was like, holy, holy crap, what's going on and how are we going to deal with it? And sort of, because information was changing, as you know, by the hour. Um, and really, by lunchtime, I just went, well, there's only one solution. All, every, every, every drop of beer needs to go into cans, and we just need to get out and on, the, on our bikes and get into as many bottle shops as we possibly can. And we've done it. Uh, Blake, my sales rep, and I have literally uh, quadrupled our, our can output in, in a matter of a week. So, which is awesome. Have you got your own canning line or have you been getting a mobile no, canner in? we've got a mobile canner in. Do you think that will change? Do you think you'll now uh, look at bringing that in-house? Eventually, yes. Eventually, absolutely. But probably that's a year down the track. 
there's not many tanning lines in the world available at the moment, Matt. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was speaking to the guys from Wild Goose, and they, you know, they've uh, already sold uh, for a new canning line what they were thinking they would sell in a year, and that's just since uh, the start of COVID. So I, I can imagine yeah, that's you'd, right. you'd be waiting a while even if you wanted one. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so a year to eighteen months. When hopefully this is all over and prices come back down, and you know, for canning. And packaging equipment comes back to really what it's worth. Because I'm sure, you know, Wild Goose is as great as they are and all of those packing companies, you know, I'm sure they're making hay while the sun shines. <laughs> so tell us, <laughs> what was your mix um, draft versus packaged before COVID-19? So we were 70% bulk for draft and about 30% packaged. And now? Now, I well... Post COVID or in, in COVID. Well, I, I guess now it's zero percent bulk, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I've still got a lot of kegs of beer in storage, uh, but they're coming down by numbers every week. Um, now our, we will sell one or two kegs to the punters every week, and we'll sell about you know four to five hundred cases. So it's about ninety nine point nine percent package and zero point one percent draft. But did you think what 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 will your plan be once you can reopen? You know, have, having found these um, packaged outlets, will your focus yeah. be to, to to service those? Yeah, absolutely. We're just gonna yeah. A big driver from now on is just servicing bottleos and and the online market. If you're close to capacity, um, yeah. does that mean that you're going to change the way that you approach your business? Absolutely. But yeah, we've done a 180 flip. So you so, won't you know, chase uh, taps anymore? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's worth it. Honestly, I don't think it's worth it. I mean, uh, as, you know, um, just in terms of, you know, uh, the, in terms of the competition, people say it's the competition. I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm an extremely good salesman. I doubt it, but I, I never had prob- too much he- issues getting tapped. But it's, what, it's your per litre co- uh, profit or... It's a per litre charge in a keg that is just, it takes too long to come in. You spend too much time chasing the debt than you do, uh, spend more money chasing the debt than you're actually making on the beer. So, you know what I mean? It's like, and, and that's just for tap beer? So bottle shop uh, bottle shops pay better than hotels? Bottle shops pay much better than hotels, I think. And uh, talking to another brewer the other day, um, he, was, he was saying the same, so... Uh, I just, you know, I think that, you know, they they do the same thing, but they're completely different models. Um, you know, pubs are expensive to run, and so I suppose moving a small brewer down the payment chain isn't a big deal. But um, whereas a bottle shop might proudly uh, promote themselves as purely independent bottle shops, and so they can't afford to push the little brewers down the chain payment chain because they need the little brewers to represent their brand and, and, and to give the customer something different to, to a completely different experience. That's a, it, it, it's the first time I've actually heard that said because everybody is so focused on securing taps um, and taps seem to be the, the, the goal of a lot of craft breweries. But mm. you don't often hear that that side of the business uh, you know, hurts, hurts your bottom line. Yeah, um, well, yeah, it does. Look, 
for us, I can't speak for everyone, Matt, obviously, but for us, you know, if you, you, you the amount of uh, debt we had outstanding pre, pre-COVID and, and now, which, you know, let's face it, a lot of us, a lot of that's not going to come back because it might be small bars, could be independent pubs that, you know, just don't, leasehold pubs that just don't over open their doors again. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that money's gone down the drain, whereas, you know, we've picked up a whole lot of bottle shops who, uh, you know, pride themselves on supplying independent beer to their market and pay on our terms, which is, you know, well, they pay 14 days. So you've actually got money coming in at the moment as opposed to just beer going out? Yes. So that in the first week of lockdown, we took 60 kegs back. We actually took more bulk beer back than we sold in the, the vol- that we took volume wise we took more we took more beer back in than what we sold out because a lot of pubs are saying well we can't we yeah. can't use the beer and you know obviously you don't want to you know a lot, of, a lot of these guys are our friends too so you know you want to help them out because you want to see them come out the other side as well so you have to take you take the beer in to make you know to see if they can hold on but has there been an increase in demand for packaged as a result of COVID that might go back to normal? Or do you think that the, um, the demand for package will stay the same once uh, you know, both your um, tap room and other pubs mm. open again? That's a million dollar question, to be honest, Matt. And it's something that you ask someone, they'll give you one answer. You ask the next person, I'll give you the other answer. I'm, I'm hoping, I'm expecting there'll be a slight drop. But uh, I'm not expecting there to be a huge drop in the demand for packaged beer. I think everyone will go out in the first few months and blow their brains out, you know. Just and I don't and I don't mean that they'll drink ir- irresponsibly because you know obviously we don't condone that. Um, but they'll be so happy to run around and see their friends and hug and kiss and lick armpits and all of that <laughs> stuff <laughs> that we might see a dip because they'll be buying all their cash down at the local bar or local restaurant or, or the local pub. Um, but then I think one thing uh, COVID has done, and that's changed a lot of purchasing patterns, and, and it created uh, purchasing habits. And I think the, those habits are going to be hard for people to break. Uh, you know, and, and I suppose the one, number one driving thing is a lot of people saying how much money they're saving, including myself. I can't believe how much money I, I'm saving at the moment, you know, because <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not going out. And people are going, oh, you know, it's really cheap to drink craft beer at home. That, that's my take on it. Like, you know, by no means am I a scientist but I guess... or an, an economist, but I think that's a positive thing for um, package. But you guys are at the coalface as well, so you get a real sense of how people operate and why they come into the bar. And I'd imagine that... It's the atmosphere and, you know, drinking in the shadow of the tanks is one of those things that lures people in, 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 into a bar like your tap room. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's the experience. It's all about experience, you know. The better experience you have, the better the beer tastes. Um, and, you know, I think we're a real, I think, you know, we are a really fun and friendly tap room. There's no pretense when you walk in. Everyone said hello to and goodbye to when everyone says hello to when they come in and goodbye to when they leave so um it's just a fun friendly atmosphere and 
that's what we pride ourselves on in, in our in our tap room. So I think people will people are going to go out, but I think the um, the level at, at which they go out is going to be a, a lot different to what it was pre-COVID from what it will be post-COVID. Does oh, well, that make sense? Absolutely, and uh, as I said at the start, this was one conversation that I really wanted to have in your tap room. So uh, maybe we can touch base again, you know, a couple of months post reopening, and you know, just sort of uh, see whether it, it has come to pass as, as you predict. Yeah, well, I look like an idiot if it hasn't. No. Oh, God, it, no, it, 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 if I stop speaking every time that happened to me, I wouldn't uh, sort of write anything. <laughs> Pat, so I, I, yeah. I, think, <laughs> I, I think you'll be fine there. Yeah, yeah look, it would be really interesting. And, you know, I operate best and talk best with a beer in my hand, Matt. So. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> well, Pat, thank you very much for joining us uh, for, for this uh, by telephone uh, conversation. And, uh, yeah, really good luck uh, as, as we start to see the, you know, dawn uh, of, of the post-COVID era um, start, to, uh, start to rise. And hopefully we can join you in the uh, tap room very, very soon. That would be wonderful, Matt. Thank you. And that was Pat McInerney. Radio Brews News is proudly presented by Cryomalt. With over 25 years in the field, Cryomalt are dedicated to providing the finest brewing ingredients to help brewers create the foundations of a truly excellent beer. They are your premium brewing partner and proud sponsors of Beer is a Conversation. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au.